A little bit disorganized this morning. I have a video clip in the sermon today, which I've never done. And so setting that up this morning, I pretty much forgot to do everything else that I normally do, such as plug in my PowerPoint, grab my microphone, put my sermon up here, but uh, we'll be good to go. Also, I wanted to just mention, if any of you ever would like to bake cookies for me, I will... I will stand and eat them right in front of you. Not a big fan of ginger snaps. Just want to throw that out. Just to be fair, nobody who's under the age of about 70 likes ginger snaps. On a serious note, I have a letter that I want to read um, from Roy and Sherry Bauer. Uh, It says, in January of 2019, summer... For those of you who don't know, that's Roy and Cherry's daughter. And her husband, Jonathan, took Sayana home from the hospital as a two-day-old foster child and felt that they would have a good chance of adopting Sayana. A couple weeks ago, they were directed to return her to her birth mother on June 11th. Sayana has a brother named Jeremiah, who is a year older than she is, and he has already been returned to their birth mother. Roy and Cherry say that it's encouraging to know that Sayana and Jeremiah get along well with each other. Jeremiah was in foster care with another family. But Roy also says that this is heartbreaking to all of us, especially Summer and Jonathan. And we don't know how Harper will handle the change. And he says, we are praying for a last-minute change in plans and that Sai and Jeremiah would return to their foster parents. If not, we will remind ourselves that God has a plan and we need to trust in him. And some specific prayer requests that they have uh, shared with us, uh, certainly to pray for Sayana and Jeremiah as they adjust to this huge change and that God will protect them and keep them from harm. Second, to please pray for their mother and to pray that their mom will be a great mother for them and that they will feel safe and loved. Third, I'll try to talk a little bit more slowly. Uh, They ask to pray that all foster parents would be able to stay involved in the lives of Sayana and Jeremiah. To please pray that they be raised in a Christian home. And fifth, and lastly, to pray for Summer, Jonathan, and Harper as they potentially have to face grieving Sayana moving away from them. And so, again, please keep this family in your prayers. That this is a really difficult situation for them. And uh, we do have a good God and uh, just continue, please, to lift them up. I also invite you to turn in your Bible to John chapter 14, which is where we'll be this morning. Last week I said it was a two-part series. I think that two-part series is going to turn into a three-part series next week. But we continue John chapter 14, verses 8 through 14. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. 
How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we praise you that you are almighty and good. Lord, I do want to pray for this child, Sayana, and for her brother, Jeremiah, Lord, and we just we want to pray that whatever works and whatever is best for them is what happens. Lord, we want to pray that wherever they are, that they be in a home that is a loving environment and one that is teaching them about your son, teaching them the gospel and raising them and training them to know you. Lord, if they do, and it is your will for them to go back with their birth mother, we pray that you would bless her and that she would be in a position where she is fully up to the task to give them a great home. And we do pray for that. Lord, we also do pray for Summer and for Jonathan and for Harper, Lord, that this is a heartbreaking situation. And we just pray for your, your nearness to them, Lord, and also to the whole family, for Roy and Sherry, Lord. Uh, just in these days, in this time of sadness and sorrow, Lord, that they can rely and trust on you in spite of that. Lord, we pray for peace that surpasses understanding. And Lord, we do pray that if it is your will for her to go back with her birth mother, that, that the family, that Summer and Jonathan can, can still know what's going on in Santa's life and be part of her life. Lord, somebody that they've had since she was two days old, who they look at as a part of their family. And so we do pray for them. Lord, I also want to pray for the family of Jean Ryder this morning. Lord, as she, uh, as they mourn her loss, Lord, we thank you for her life. Lord, and most importantly, we thank you for the hope that she has as somebody who knew your son and had faith in your gospel. And in that we rejoice. Lord, we pray for our time in your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. And as I mentioned a moment ago, we're continuing in the same section of John this morning that we were in last week. And really, I think that this is basically a continuation. It's almost like one long message where I decided to be merciful and uh, not have it be like a three-hour sermon. Uh, but I return to what Philip, the Apostle Philip, says at the beginning of our passage. Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And if you recall last week... We did talk about how truly relatable Philip's request is. I think we all feel that way sometimes. I think we all have times where God can seem distant and hard to find. And so last week, we talked about arguments for the existence of God and why we can believe. And we also talked about how Jesus is the ultimate example in showing us God and making God known. And today we continue in John 14 and discuss how God is made known also through miracles. 
And this is true both in the ministry of Jesus, and it is also true today. And Jesus continues to respond to Philip, and we begin in verse 11. Jesus is speaking, continuing to speak to Philip, and he says, Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. The first part of this verse echoes some things that Jesus has said elsewhere in this gospel. In John chapter 10, Jesus says almost the exact same thing to a group of Pharisees who respond by trying to arrest Jesus. But Jesus here points to the unity between himself and the Father, that they are united in power, in glory, in mission, in purpose, in divinity, and on and on. Jesus reveals God to the world. As Paul says in Colossians 1.19, in him the fullness of deity was pleased to dwell. And we're going to spend the bulk of our time this morning on the second half of verse 11, where Jesus calls Philip to believe on account of his works. Now, under the umbrella of works, we could certainly look to the righteous life that Jesus lived, the teaching that he gave. But within John, I think the works more specifically refers to his miraculous signs during his ministry. That those are what authenticate his heaven-sent, divinely ordained ministry. The first sign that Jesus does in the Gospel of John is when he turns water into wine at a wedding feast. And in response to that miracle, after that's over, in John 2.11, John says, This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Jesus did not turn water into wine simply to help out at the wedding feast where they needed someone to help. He didn't do it just for its own sake, but he did it as a display of his glory. And all throughout the first half of John's gospel, we see these miraculous signs that Jesus does. Healing the sick, feeding the multitudes, giving sight to the blind, walking on water. And before going to the cross... Before that, the greatest sign that we see in John chapter 11 is when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. All of those signs are done with specific reasons and pointing to Jesus, who he is, and the heavenly ministry that he advanced in the world. They show his power and dominion. They've already said they show his glory. They show fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies that would happen in the Messianic age fulfilled in Christ. And they further authenticate and confirm who Jesus is. And so in Jesus' response to Philip, what he is telling Philip is that those miraculous signs are a legitimate reason to believe in Jesus. And certainly the greatest miracle of Jesus, his resurrection from the dead at this point, was still to come. But miracles are a reason why we, too, can believe in the Lord. Now, on Easter, we talked about the resurrection. The resurrection is the basis for our faith and what we believe. It is the heart of the gospel and the purpose of the gospel. It's the greatest authenticator of Jesus, who he is, who he said he was, And the fulfillment of his promise in the world. 
And it is because of his resurrection that we have the hope of eternal life and the forgiveness of our sins. And it is also a real historical event that happened in human history. That Christianity does not call us to believe in some myth. That Jesus did not symbolically rise from the dead. That Jesus was literally dead and literally rose from the dead. And on Easter, we talked about the historical evidence for the resurrection. That just as Jesus told the Apostle Philip to look at his works, that we too can look at his works and his greatest work, his resurrection, as a reason to believe, as an example of God revealing himself to the world. Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. God is still at work in the world. Miracles still happen today. I'll define a miracle as an extraordinary event with Supernatural intervention intended for divine purposes. There's different ways people define that term. Miracles defy explanation along scientific or rational grounds. They're transcendent. I should mention also in this sermon that I was helped by the book The Case for Miracles by Lee Strobel. In the book, he mentions this, that a 2010 Pew Research study found that 80% of Americans say that they believe in miracles. A 2004 survey by Louis Finkelstein for the Institute for Religious and Social Studies of the Jewish Theological Seminary surveyed 1,100 physicians in America. Three-fourths of them said that they believe in miracles. And more than half, 55%, said that they believed that they had witnessed miracles. Doctors, people who are the most educated people in our society, and people who, more than any of us, have firsthand experience of dealing with people who are very sick and ill and dying. And so it's striking that most of them think that they've seen miracles. And another survey, 38% of Americans claimed to have personally experienced a miracle. That's tens of millions of people. Now, are all of those legitimate miracles? Probably not. I'm sure we've probably heard stories before of somebody tells us and we think that didn't happen. But there are also credible, reasonable, rational people, I'm sure, who have told us stories where we totally believe and trust them And it's something that, again, defies explanation. That there are mysterious and and mysterious healings and situations where there's no explanation. And again, we're not talking about prosperity gospel, faith healers. A lot of those people are honestly basically magicians in a crowded auditorium where they're using tricks and adrenaline to get people to do whatever to make it look like they've healed them. But people who actually have been documented to have illnesses and that suddenly go away. People who are under medical supervision and suddenly heal. Miracles should be an encouragement to us. They should encourage our faith. 
They should give us hope and evidence that God is active in the world. When we're tempted to use words that mirror what Philip says in our passage, show us the Father, and it is enough for us that we have miraculous signs in the world, both during the ministry of Jesus and in the ways in which he intervenes and interacts with the world today. And so I'd like to share three miraculous stories. And uh, Ethan, if you want to get, we won't play it just yet, but if you want to switch over from PowerPoints so we can uh, get the video queued up. First story is about a man named Dwayne Miller. He was a pastor in Texas who came down with a case of the flu in 1990. He preached on Sunday morning. His throat was bothering him, was really scratchy and strained. His voice was very hoarse. He eventually recovered from the flu. But his voice did not. It stayed perpetually scratchy and strained. Just to be heard, he had to scream at the top of his lungs to be heard in this raspy tone. The flu virus had damaged his vocal cords. He saw a specialist, and then another, and then another, and the issue did not improve. And the following year, Miller resigned from his position as the pastor of this church. I don't know if you know this or not, but being able to talk is pretty important for being a pastor. Over nearly three years, he saw 63 specialists. An international consortium of throat specialists in Europe evaluated his x-rays and records. They didn't understand and said that it would not improve. By 1993, his family had moved to Houston, and they were attending a large Baptist church in Houston. He was asked to teach an adult Sunday school class. Knowing the state of his voice, he was originally resistant to the idea. But people promised that they would suffer through his raspy voice and he could teach. Now, being a large church, the Sunday school class from this church had about 150 people in it. And so this church would record the Sunday school class because 150 people, inevitably, not everybody can go every single week. And so they recorded him, and in the lesson we're going to play a clip from in just a moment, Miller was talking about the subject of healing and saying that God does not always bring healing in life. And he's teaching from Psalm 103. And just briefly to quote a little bit of Psalm 103, beginning in verse 2. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. And again, in just a moment, hopefully we're going to play this clip. And he's teaching to the class, and at the beginning you'll notice his very raspy and strained voice. And the clip, it was just the audio because it was the early 90s, and they recorded it for a cassette tape. So the clip, it gives you the words that he's saying. But I want you to pay attention when he says, I have had and you have had times past pit experiences. Just pay attention to that and hopefully we can get this video going. Oh, 
Now that I know we can do that, I'm going to start putting clips in every sermon. Now, um, in mid-sentence, Miller's voice was restored. In the video, he says, I don't don't understand this right now. And people start clapping. His voice went from raspy to heal. And again, this was not some church that believes in all sorts of signs and wonders and word of faith. It was the First Baptist Church of Houston. Upon later medical evaluation, doctors said that Miller's voice had recovered. Even the scar tissue had disappeared. And again, this was 1993. His voice is still fine. He has shared his story all across the country, and I'm sure all across the world, of how his voice was healed. And he returned to ministry. Second story. In the case for miracles, Lee Strobel interviews New Testament scholar Craig Keener, who's a professor at Asbury Theological Seminary in Kentucky. I consider... Keener to be one of the best New Testament scholars in the world. I think he's a very thorough and rigorous scholar. He's a former atheist who came to faith. Keener's book on miracles is kind of infamous in New Testament circles because it started out as a footnote. He was writing a commentary on the book of Acts and started a footnote on miracles and kept writing and writing and just turned it into a book and then a second book. So it's a 2,000-page two-volume book on miracles where he outlines just tons of case studies of miracles from around the world. And in the case of miracles, Keener talks with uh, Lee Strobel about a well-documented case in Chicago, a Chicago-area woman named Barbara Comiskey-Snyder who had progressive multiple sclerosis. She had been diagnosed and treated at the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota, one of the world's best clinics. Keener has interviewed Barbara as well as two physicians who treated her. In the book, a board-certified physician who treated Barbara and who's performed over 20,000 operations called her one of the most hopelessly ill patients I ever saw. Numerous doctors agreed on her diagnosis. She was in high school when she was originally diagnosed. And she battled these issues for 16 years. She spent months in hospitals. She lost function in one of her lungs. Her other lung operated at less than 50% of its normal capacity. She lost control of her bowels and had to have a catheter and colostomy bag for waste. She was legally blind. She was on a feeding tube. Eventually, she needed continuous oxygen. She had a tracheotomy. By 1981, she had not walked in seven years. She was bedridden. Her hands and feet were strained into this almost deformed positions. And she went on hospice in 1981. It was given less than six months to live. One day, a friend called Moody Radio Station in Chicago and asked people to pray for Barbara. More than 400 people wrote letters to Barbara's church. Again, this is the early 80s. People wrote letters. More than 400 people wrote letters to Barbara's church saying that they were praying for her. On Pentecost Sunday, 1981, Barbara's aunt came to her home with a couple friends to read some of the letters people had written for Barbara. Barbara would later say that she heard a man's voice tell her to get up, despite the fact that there wasn't a man in the room. Get up and walk. Barbara stood up, removed her oxygen, and began to walk on legs that hadn't supported her body weight in years. Breathing fine, 
Her vision was restored. That night, Barbara attended a Sunday night church service with her family at Wheaton Wesleyan Church. And during the service, the pastor asked if anybody had any announcements. Barbara walked down the center aisle of the church to the front of the sanctuary. Upon further medical evaluation, Barbara's lung function had been fully restored. And at the time that Strobel wrote the book, The Case for Miracles, five years ago, 35 years had passed, and Barbara had never had a recurrence of her illnesses. Her case so defied explanation that two different doctors who treated her both wrote books about it. God is working. Third story. I think about my niece, Mila, who was born last November. Many of you probably know part of the story, and I know I shared prayer requests at the time. My sister-in-law had had a pretty healthy pregnancy. She had already had two children when Mila was born. Mila's labor was induced in November. And when the labor was induced, the doctors were unaware, but Mila's umbilical cord was wrapped twice around her neck, and also it was in a knot. When she was born, she was basically stillborn. She had no heartbeat, and she was not breathing. Doctors tried CPR. The minutes ticked by. The doctor who did the CPR would later say he nearly quit. After 25 minutes, they were able to finally get a faint pulse in Mila. Around 28 to 30 minutes, they were able to get her pulse up to a normal rate. It was the first time in the history of that hospital that a baby had gone that long without breathing and lived. Now, things were still weren't clearly out of the woods. And so the doctors asked if she went into any kind of cardiac arrest or code if they would want them to resuscitate her a second time. Even after they got Mila breathing, the prognosis was not good. She was deprived of oxygen for almost a half hour. There are concerns about brain damage and other developmental complications. She spent 17 days in the NICU, but when she came home for the first time on Thanksgiving Day last year, she was completely healthy. The doctor who gave her the MRI called it miraculous. Despite the fact that she was not breathing and had no pulse when she was born, Blood was somehow still circulating. And here's a picture of Mila today. She even has a job, as she doesn't have a job. <laughs> but the goodness of God. There are times in his goodness where God supernaturally intervenes. Now, a skeptical person could ask, well, why not always? Because the world has fallen and sinful. We don't deserve any of his grace. So instead of asking why we don't always see these situations happen, we should ask why we ever see these situations. And thank God for these glimpses of his goodness and power that he gives us to remember who he is and that he loves us and loves his world. Furthermore, God never says that he will always bring a miraculous Intervention And the clip that we played a few minutes ago of the pastor whose voice was sealed while he was speaking, ironically, what he's talking about at the beginning of the clip is how God does not always heal people. At least not on this side of eternity. 
It is in heaven that, as Revelation 21, 4 says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Also, if God always did what we wanted him to do, he wouldn't be God. We would be. But we don't have perfect and sovereign knowledge of the universe. If God always did what we asked him to do, we would be God. But he is greater than us. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. In John chapter 11, when Jesus learns that his friend Lazarus is ill, he does not immediately go to him. In John eleven four, Jesus says, This illness does not end in death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Jesus knew that Lazarus would die, and he knew that he was going to raise him. It was because he did not initially intervene that he could do something greater. Sometimes God does that. On a much smaller scale, I think again of the pastor we talked about, Dwayne Miller. Losing his ministry and spending three years with voice issues, that is obviously not the worst thing that anybody has ever experienced. But undoubtedly, that would be a grueling experience. He went through difficult seasons of depression, and again, that would be really difficult. But God used him in that horrible experience for a tremendous purpose, purpose in impacting people's lives all over the world with his testimony. God is good, and he is working. We don't always get the miracle that we're hoping for, but God is no less good. He is no less at work in the world. He is no less sovereign. That all things really do work together for good for those who love the Lord. And we must remember his goodness. Philip pleaded, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. But that's often not quite so simple because people are fickle. People are sinful. Sometimes I think a person can see something that's miraculous and not really truly appreciate the source. A person can hear about something miraculous and not truly have their lives transformed by it. Because it's not just about seeing what's miraculous or impressive or unexpected. That at the end of the day, we're called to faith and to belief in a great God. Believing in him, remembering God, his goodness, his gospel, and his faithfulness every day. Now, the miracles in life should encourage our faith and stir our faith in God. But we must also daily pursue a relationship. Living lives where we remember what God has done. Where we remember that God is faithful. Not just in the big, spectacular moments but how he has sustained our lives and families throughout generations. The little things that we don't even maybe think about or remember. The little decisions that contribute to our lives. And appreciating what God is doing. Throughout the Old Testament, it's constantly pointing back to the Exodus. That's the greatest miracle in the Old Testament. Constantly pointing back to when God redeemed the Israelites from Egypt. The Passover meal celebrated annually. As a remembrance of that event. Really, all of the 
feasts in the Old Testament are opportunities to remember God's goodness and faithfulness and the various ways in which the Lord has blessed his people. And what does Jesus say at the Last Supper when he breaks the bread? Do this in remembrance of me. For as long as we eat the bread and drink the cup, we remember his death until he comes. Remembering. We're called to remember the greatest miracle of the New Testament. Jesus' glorious resurrection from the dead. And we are called to remember the good God who loves us. Who gave his son. And his son who was willing to go to the cross so that we could have life. And living every day of our lives. Remembering that and living to the glory of God. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are a good God. And we thank you for the times where, out of your grace and goodness, you heal people. Lord, we thank you for the encouragement that it is to see you at work in the world. Lord, I pray for all of us this week that we would go out as your people. Through all of the difficulties we might face, stressful situations, physical ailments that we might have. And in spite of all of that, Lord, to walk as your people and to know that you were good and to trust you in all things. In Jesus' name, amen.